Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Food for thought. <laughs> a study in keeping pure the pantry of the mind. So this is a message on our thought life as a Christian and how we actually process and take in thought and how it affects us. The, you know, I, I could have named this message every thought because I, I'd say even though we're serious Christians in here, I don't think we understand that every single thought matters, that there isn't one thought that we are either entertaining or shooing away that doesn't have significance to us. You know that when we properly handle our thought life, it actually strengthens us. And even when the enemy wants to propose a thought and we neglect it or we push it away, it actually helps us. So we shouldn't be afraid of those evil thoughts because they do come. It's not us as the author of them. We live in a hostile world that wants to suggest all sorts of things. However, we must recognize that this territory of the inner man is meant to be kept. It's meant to be uh, maintained by the truth of Jesus Christ. And so how we handle our thought life matters greatly. And that's what this message is about. So food for thought. I, I, I rarely would do something like this, but I wanted to give you some perspective of what we're dealing with in our world today. This is CNN's 10 Ideas That Changed the World. Uh, by the way, I, I don't come to the same list of the 10 ideas that uh, change everything. However, it's not like I'm going to argue. I would say that, yeah, those are 10 things that really did change the world. CNN is almost happy about it uh, when it's referring to these thoughts and these ideas. But what you'll see is the, the basic construct of an idea has implications. And when an idea takes root it actually changes things. It's, it's like in our life, if we allow unforgiveness, so then unforgiveness is a doorway for other things, for resentment and bitterness. And bitterness is like a plant. It's like a weed. And it actually chokes out all other life within your soul, and it spreads. And pretty soon your whole life is full of bitterness. And it actually then infects those around you. Well, the same is true with an evil thought. A thought that is contrary to the kingdom of heaven actually has far-ranging uh, potential to change the world, it's true, but to also darken the world and entomb the world. So let's look at CNN's top, or 10 ideas. Now, I'm just going to skim through this, and you're going to notice as I go through this that uh, gravity, for instance, the idea of gravity, understanding the concept of gravity, changed the world. Well, you know, gravity's always been there, but to sometimes define something and to give it a name and an understanding, it really does. And so as a result, you'll notice a lot of our inventions uh, came and flowed out of that clear understanding of the law of gravity. Uh, zero uh, is in the list. The idea of zero, isn't it funny that uh, they would say that up until the 12th century, we didn't really have the mathematical concept of zero. Of course, it existed. It meant nothing. But it, when we don't include it in our, in our numbering system, it's very difficult to have uh, decimals and uh, all the math that most of us know in this room is based around the idea of zero. So yeah, I could, I could understand that. Soap. Well, uh, there's a few places on earth that still need it, but uh, I'm very glad that we have it here. Uh, the World Wide Web, and I would, I would agree that it's, it's been a game changer in the world, whether for positive or for negative. Uh, this is the one I wanted to stop on first, evolution. This is the sixth in the list, and so we're sort of counting down to uh, the big daddy. Uh, but uh, evolution, I don't know that these are in any particular order, uh, but this is, this is a major game changer. And so I wanted to read you what it says. Once describes the single best idea anyone has ever had. Isn't that fascinating? Now, depending on your background, I, you know, I, I uh, look at evolution and I laugh. Okay? It's because I'm a Bible-believing Christian. 
And I know there's some that would say, well, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, but evolution is just a fact. And I would say, laugh again. Uh, In other words, it is completely contrary to the entire construct of the unchanging God. The way that God works is nature, everything, is contrary to this idea. And as a result, this one singular idea has so impacted not just science, but theology, Christianity. And so just look at this. English naturalist Charles Darwin's theory of evolution proposes that all life, including humans, is related and is descended from a common ancestor. Prior to Darwin's theory, published in On the Origin of Species in 1859, it was accepted that man came from an archetype, Adam, created by God and was set apart from animals. Darwin's theory showed creation had taken longer than the biblical seven days and that man was, in fact, likely to be descended from apes. As well as launching a revolution in biology, his idea irrevocably shook the human race's conception of where they come from. This is not a small idea. This is, a small, this is an idea that crept into the human thought pattern and actually altered the course of thinking in our modern world. So, and then we have human rights. Vaccinations made the list. Relativity. And this is the other one I wanted to stop on. The unconsciousness. When Freud, so this is Sigmund Freud, so we have Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysts, thank you Freud for all your wonderful help, suggested that our behavior is not always ruled by our conscious thoughts, nor is it always in our best interests. He formed the basis of the idea that individuals can be curious about themselves and make a study of their own minds. He thought people talking in certain situations could let out ideas from the unconscious in dreams or slips of the tongue. Hence the term Freudian slip. His ideas have permeated pop culture to such an extent that much of what we understand about the sexes, relationships, films, and books can be seen as reflected through a Freudian mirror. That's an understatement. When we get into the understanding of a Christian thought, Darwin and Freud, little do you know how often you think Darwinian and Freudian thoughts. It has so permeated the Christian world today. So then the number one thing on the list, whether this is the proper order or not, was farming. You know, so as unexciting as that is, I just figured I would give you the list. If I just stopped at two and then didn't give you one, you'd be sorely disappointed. So introducing Charles Darwin. Now, I'm not, this message isn't about Darwin. This is mainly just an introduction. This one singular man uh, who did not live a very happy life, uh, he chose to defy God and to deny what the scriptures say, there had always been a classical understanding, even though it had been challenged in many ways, and there still were those who refused to accept a God. But now Darwin gave an avenue, intellectual avenue, through which people could deny God in good conscience. If we can explain how this world was created without God, then we no longer have to be burdened with this God consciousness, which forces us to feel a conviction when we know that we're doing wrong. And as a result, this thought process was very well entertained and very popular when Darwin proposed it. Darwin's food for thought. So Darwin gave us some food for thought. And I'm going to begin to build on this idea of food for thought. I'm going to define a certain attribute of our being as a pantry. That there is a pantry in our being where we're storing thoughts. And then we're also preparing out of that pantry in a kitchen that which is going to flow out of our life. Our life And that which flows out of our life comes from that pantry. So whatever we're stocking in that pantry is going to define what flows out of our life or the fruit that comes out of our life. So Darwin's food for thought, he said, the earth evolved. It wasn't created, it evolved. It wasn't created. The key concept is that's a defiance of what we understand the biblical account to be. God created the heavens and the earth. And so therefore, this is a direct contradiction to what we know as the Bible. God's word, this is man's word, directly confronting God's word and putting his opinion, even though he was born, what, uh, near uh, 5,600 years after the creation event, this man lofting his opinion above God's. The logical end, see, with every thought in every pantry, flows a logical end. If you follow it, it always takes you somewhere. There is no God. And this is why his idea was so widely embraced. 
freedom of conscious, uh, consciousness. I do not need to follow this God anymore. If Darwin is correct, I'm free. I'm my own God. And this is why it was so attractive. Sigmund Freud, these are very nice looking men, aren't they? Sigmund Freud, you'll notice, see, look at the dates of Darwin, 1809 to 1892. Sigmund Freud was born in 1856. Sigmund Freud would credit that his thinking flowed out of Darwin. He was a student of Darwin. And so what you see is that one thought begets another thought. And Sigmund Freud altered the entire perception of how the inner man works. So Freud's food for thought. Be curious of self. Live to define and understand you. You are the center of the universe. So what does Darwin teach? There is no God. That means that it's about you. So then Freud comes up and says, let's figure out you. Let's define you. If you really are the center, we need to make sure we understand how to live with you as the center. The logical end, life is all about you. Darwin begat Freud. I gave a little picture uh, coming up that you guys can enjoy too. And Cush begat Nimrod and began to be a mighty one in the earth. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So using that uh, scripture as a reasoning point, I have modern reality 10, 8, and 10. And Darwin begat Freud. His ideas began to be mighty in the earth. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That which defies God. That which opposes God. And this is the flow of what we are dealing with in modern reality. So here's Darwin. And he says there isn't a God. And then out of that thinking comes forth another life, another idea. And that's Freud. Hmm, if there isn't a God, that would make life all about me. And this is how the flow of thought works, which is why as Christians we must recognize that one evil thought, one thought that enters in, actually will create more thoughts of the same nature. They will continue to populate our inner life if they are not dealt with and removed. The supposed brilliance of men. Darwin discovered the origin of all things. Really? Freud discovered the way the inner life of man really works. Really? You know that most people today actually conclude that? That Darwin's the one that figured out how all things began. Thank you, Darwin. How can we you know, somehow show honor to you? Well, how about Freud? He discovered the way the inner life of man works. Really? Are you sure about that? Freud popped out of the womb in 1856. Are you saying we didn't understand how the inner life of man worked before 1856? You've got to be kidding me. Satan doesn't create. He merely takes what is already there and seeks to pervert it. What we see here is something that God has been on top of the whole time. Darwin comes in and strangulates a notion and an idea. Freud strangulates it all the more, and then they start to get credit for it. And that's the, the issue that we're dealing with in our modern days. We actually look back at these men as if they are brilliant. Lucifer. Lucifer, you could say he's a brilliant sort of character. He's also known as Satan. His name means bringer of light. Isn't that a, a fascinating idea, that his name means bringer of knowledge or understanding? You see, Lucifer in the form of a serpent, is hanging from a tree in the Garden of Eden. And what is he bringing to Eve? He's bringing something that contradicts God's word. He is baiting her to take on a thought, to believe a thought, and that is that she is the center, that life doesn't need to be about the creator, it can be about her. That is the same exact thought of Darwin and Freud. This is not new. You see, this is Lucifer's great game, and it's been his game from the beginning. And the way we handle the most basic of basic lies is going to define the course and the trajectory of our soul. But this light that Lucifer is bringing is a false light that has a singular intention in its illumination, and that is to question the words of God. Did God really say? Its illumination is an, of an a, insidious nature. Listen to what it says about Lucifer. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Lucifer believed the lie. It was all about him. And so he corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his own splendor. When we as men do the same, 
We are following in the same trajectory of Lucifer himself. Lucifer knows there's a God, but he deliberately chooses to defy that God. And he corrupts his wisdom for the sake of his own gain, his own exaltation. When we as men and women of this earth allow that same thought to come into the pantry of our soul, the greatest evils take place. Darwin's origins. You know, people will even call it that. Darwin's origins. As if this guy created the heavens and the earth. The Bible spoke about the origin of the species long before Darwin started postulating. All Darwin did was propose a model that eliminated God from his position as the creator of all things. Freud's self. The Bible spoke about self long before Freud started musing. What Freud did was supply self an intellectual loophole in order to oust God as Lord without any guilt. Freud's id, ego, and superego. You know, just read Romans 7. That's all it is. Paul talked about these things long before. The Bible spoke about the old man, the flesh, and the body of sin long before Freud came along. What Freud did was excuse the old man's lust and debauchery, treating it as normal and excusing it from any sense of guilt or pending judgment. Freud's subconsciousness. The Bible spoke about the heart and the reins thousands of years before Freud was ever in a diaper. What Freud did was give the inner man a license to do as he pleases, think what he pleases, and die as he pleases, forlorn and absent of that which gives life. These men did not invent the notions. They didn't create the heavens and the earth, and they didn't create man. They don't understand man except from a lens absent of God, and that's all they have to give, and their knowledge kills It is a light that is insidious in its nature and it destroys the human race. Though CNN would boast that the world is such a better place now that we've excused ourselves from a God consciousness. All we've done is devastate ourselves. The secret to revival and renewal is to have God's ideas in the pantry of our soul. Where is the world going? The time in which we live is a desperate hour. And yet we're at a full maturity with the truth of the word of God embedded in our souls. The responsibility lies here for us to make sure that we are guarding our thought life, number one, and that we are fighting for the truths of God's kingdom and the ideas that truly save in the world in which we live. The biblical idea of the inner man. So I have a picture here. Whether or not my picture is going to be classified as brilliant or great, I doubt, But it's really hard to dissect and break down. Because, I mean, here we have Freud who's saying, oh, as if he's inventing the idea of the inner man. When in actuality, the Bible talked about it long before Freud came along. And the the Bible, I have one through six. And you'll notice that it sort of goes around and there's something right in the very center. And I have to admit, Darwin and Freud are right. It is all about us. But that is, according to the scriptures, being revealed to us as the bedrock of sin. The root of sin is this. This is how we all pop out of the womb. Something is off. Something is out of order. And so what we have is the first one is the thought receptor. A thought comes and it is presented to us. And so you'll see up in this region that I have a mouth. I know that that doesn't make a lot of sense, but we're going to liken this to food. Okay, now we know that Thoughts and ideas are oftentimes going to be injected through the ear, but they also come through the eye. And so it's in this head region. This is the control center of the body, if you want to say it that way. And so we have a thought receptor. And so as a result, we were designed as humans by God, by our creator, to actually receive thought, to have ideas enter. And so we oftentimes will call it the mind. But you see at number six, the thought expressor, where do thoughts come out of our life? Well, you can, you can actually, my mom used to say, don't look at me that way. You don't roll your eyes, Eric. You can communicate a lot of things with your mouth and with your eyes, even when you don't speak. However, the classic way of understanding it is that which is flowing out of our mouth is a dead giveaway of what's going on inside of us. Okay, so we have that realm. We're going to symbolize it with a mouth today because we take in food through the mouth and we speak through the mouth. So then we have the second tier, which you see number two, the thought tester. That's a kidney over there. And so we have two kidneys. And we have a, the thought tester is over there. And the, the kidneys are supposed to be set up to purify the blood, to actually add 
a, a dimension of safety. It's like, whoa, whoa, this is unclean, and it cleanses it and it purges it. Okay, but if your kidneys are shut down, which is exactly what this is, in other words, what we don't realize until the word of God speaks to us is, hey, this is actually death right here. As long as self is at the center, these things do not function as they ought. We are receiving thoughts, but we're not purifying them. We're not kicking out the wrong ones, but we're actually taking in anything and everything. And then what we have is what's called the heart. Okay, that whole bottom part, the, body, the, 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 the word of God calls it the heart. The, the call in the kidneys is one way. The heart in the reins is another way that God says it. All throughout the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, that's actually what it says. God tests the call in the kidneys, the heart in the reins. This is the part of every sacrifice that was laid on the altar by the Jewish priests that was taken for God. This was God's special part. Well, how about in us? What's the special part of this sacrifice? It's that inner man, that inner life. And God cares deeply about what's taking place in those kidneys and in that heart. This is the center of man. And so the first dimension, I call it number three, is the pantry, the pantry, which is the food for thought. It's like, what are you storing away? This is that dimension of your life that Freud would want to say he invented by calling it the subconsciousness. However, you have a dimension that we're going to call the heart, and it's a storage place for all that God is building inside of you. And how you reveal what is inside of you comes out through number six. In other words, you're going to be able to test a man by his tongue, and that's what James says. James says, listen to the man's tongue, and you'll be able to tell if his religion is false, because what comes out of a man is revealing what is in his heart. So it's what's revealing what's in the pantry of his soul. So when we are preparing our thoughts, if you're ever preparing to speak something, share something, answer back a question, what do you draw from? You draw from what is in your pantry. And so as a result, when you are preparing your thoughts, your expression of life, how you handle your eyes, what you say with your mouth, what your body posture is, you are going to take from your pantry and prepare it in the kitchen. And the kitchen of the heart is the concept of the preparations of thought. And then before it launches out into the world, you have a thought, but before it launches out in the world, there's another kidney. And it's supposed to test and approve that thought before it comes out. And you've noticed that there's some people in this world that do not have that kidney. And they just let it fly. You see, they're supposed to... Remember, your mom says, think before you speak. Mm-hmm, that's exactly right. Add some kidney to that thought. You see, it, it's supposed to thought approve. You're supposed to make sure you check off on that. But if you do not, all you have is self. Your checkoff system is very weak. Because how is self going to approve a thought? How is it going to test a thought? It has to do with if it makes self look good, feel good, if it aggrandizes and comforts self. That becomes our reasoning point. And as a result, anything and everything can begin to flow into that pantry because Lucifer specializes in getting that sort of thought into your pantry. So if you only have self at the center of your life, you're a dead man, you're a dead woman. You see, you are vulnerable to everything and everything ending up in your pantry. And as a result, that which is going to come out of your life is not going to please God. And number six, the thought expresser. So out of the mouth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. One way that we could say it in this message is out of the pantry, the food is prepared. Oh, generation of vipers, says Jesus, how can you being evil speak good things? Well, He's asking a simple question. How can you, according to the word of God, you're evil. So how can you speak good things? Isn't that a strange statement? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Who's the good man? His name's Jesus. And out of The good treasure of his heart, he's bringing forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. You see, the Bible all throughout, if you begin to look at it, you study Freud and then you study the Bible, you'll realize that Freud is only twisting and emptying out everything that God has already made clear in Scripture. You see, if you study your life without God, you you could come to some Freudian understanding. We as Christians don't reason that way. We reason from a completely different center. We don't reason from self-esteem. We reason from God-esteem. When self is at the center, your end conclusion is self-esteem. How are you feeling about it? That's not how God does it. That's not what truth is based on. 
So what are you eating? Remember this message is called Food for Thought. What is coming into your mind? Is it the word of God or is it the word of the devil? Is it the word of God or is it the word of brilliant men? We have a lot of smart men on this earth. And you'll notice, and this is one of the arguments that the smart men oftentimes use, like if that many smart men don't believe in God, how could he exist? Well, I would say that the more you worship your mind over the word of God, you might have a high IQ. That means nothing to me. A true intelligence is one that knows and recognizes that they are a created being in desperate need of a savior. Everything in God's creation leads us to that conclusion. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that thou, ha- that thou might be justified in thy sayings and might overcome when thou art judged. So let God be true and every man a liar. The great argument of Paul, God will be justified in his sayings and he will overcome when judged. I don't care how high the IQ is. If someone disagrees with God Almighty, they're in a very untenable position. The word of God is food. So when we talk about what we are eating, it's an interesting thought to think that the Bible actually presents the word of God as food. Now, the word of God comes in two different packages. The word of God, for most of us, when I say that, we think of the text of Scripture. But the word of God also comes in the person of Jesus Christ. So the word of God is actually rightly known as the text of scripture, and it's also rightly known as the person of Jesus Christ. So the word of God in both text and in person is food. And Jesus is the word of God. For the bread of God, says Jesus, is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes on me shall never thirst. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, that was just as awkward then as it might sound to us today. He said, was that cannibalism? We're not supposed to eat that, are we? And so this is very important because it's a theme in the scriptures. Even in the Old Testament, there's this idea of the word of God being taken in. Thy words were found, it says in Jeremiah, and I did eat them. Well, who eats words? What a strange statement that is. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So Jeremiah ate the word of God. And then we have an Ezekiel, but thou son of man, hear what I say unto thee. God is speaking to Ezekiel. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. Eat this. What's he going to give him? Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou finds. Eat this roll and go speak into the house of Israel. It had the word of God on the front and the back. And he had to eat the word of God before he was ready to speak the word of God. You see, what entered in prepared it to come out. This is the pattern in the Old Testament. If you are stocking the wrong thing in your pantry, if you are bringing in the wrong thoughts into your pantry, then what is coming out is not the word of God. It is not that which edifies and brings life. There's only one thing that brings life, and that's Jesus Christ. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. We're eating a lot of books and rolls and scrolls here. Receiving the word is truth. So the idea is, when you acknowledge that the word of God is in fact the word of God, you treat it as food. And that is what you allow in. You have a diet, and what you eat is very important. And some of you that are conscientious of food and the intake of food and that, you know, what it does to your body when you eat the wrong food, understand this in a physical or biological sense, but it's even more true in the spiritual sense. In other words, I could drink a Coca-Cola in the physical sense, and it's not healthy for me, and it does have ramifications, it might spike my blood sugar, and then I might be tired, you know, uh, a little bit later. And those are, those are factual uh, things that can happen. In other words, bad food equals uh, bad behavior or health uh, in the individual. But spiritual food is of even a greater gravity to our life. And when we drink in or eat a Coca-Cola-like thing spiritually, it actually 
has such a damaging effect upon our life that most of us blame it on all sorts of things. I didn't get enough rest last night, or yeah, you know, maybe this is happening in my life. I'm going through a tough time. We don't recognize that to take in these thoughts actually is what is undermining our very life. So receiving the word as truth. So what you'll see I did in this is I put a nice green square in the middle. When we come to Jesus Christ, this is what we are doing. We are receiving the word of God. What is the word of God testifying? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's answer to your need. Your inner life is in turmoil. You have the wrong things in your pantry. You are at the center of your existence, and as a result, this is what's called sin, the principle of sin. You are controlled by something other than you, which therefore, even though you want to have something good come out of your life, you can't get it to come out because there is something else that is controlling you. Your heart is deceitful. You are a mess, but an answer has been given you. And so that's what the word of God is preaching to our soul. It's called the good news. And when we receive that word of God, we eat it, we take it in, and we actually allow it to displace us at the center of our life. It's no longer our counsel. Like, how do I feel about that? How am I going to be benefited from this? That's no longer the root of our life. The root of our life is the word of God. What does God say? That's what I believe. Now you'll notice that the word of God enters in, it actually is involved and engaged in all of the different sectors. So we go from having six to technically seven dimensions to our life. You see, when we rejected God way back in the days of Adam, when one man sinned, all sinned. One man died, all died. We're in the descendancy of Adam. And so therefore, all of us, we're null and void. That middle, that square, do you know that the Holy of Holies is, is a square? It's shaped 20 cubits, but 20 cubits, 20 cubits high even. It's a square. And so what we have is that square in the middle of our life where God has been absent. And when he is absent, it's death there. It, there's no power there. There's no life to be able to control the other dimensions of thought and reason. And as a result, the expression of our life and the fruit that's coming out of our life is death. It is unrighteousness. And so what we see is the word of God actually begins to affect the thought receptor dimensions of our life. And so when a thought comes, the word of God says, "Uh uh-uh, oh, no, no. You see, there's something that chimes in. And for the first time in our life, we begin to recognize, wait a minute. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be receiving that thought. It affects the thought tester. We begin to be discerning. And that's what the whole idea of discernment comes from. What are we discerning from? Just a vibe? No, from the word of God we are discerning. And the more familiar we are with the Word of God, the more we mature in the Word of God, the more discerning we become. And then it's affecting the pantry, the food for thought. It's saying, this is how we organize it here. These are the thoughts that we approve of. This is how we're going to stock it. Are we stocking enough of this? Do we have enough of this down here? You see, the Word of God is affecting our pantry and that which we are storing in that dimension beyond our consciousness. In other words, if I'm going to use a Freud term, consciousness, I'm going to say there's a part of us that is thinking and reasoning Right now, you are hearing a message, but you might not be thinking about mowing the lawn this afternoon. Now, some of you really are thinking about mowing the lawn this afternoon because it just hopped up to your consciousness. And there's just a dimension of your life that you aren't necessarily always aware of. Well, that's way down there in the pantry. But God still is going to touch what's going on down in the pantry, and there are going to be times where he's going to examine it, and he's going to take a little tour through it and say, we've got something down here that doesn't belong. Usually, you know how you know that? Because something came out of number six, that thought expressor up there, and God says, hmm, what was that? And you're like, I don't know. And he says, do you want me to show you? And he goes all the way down to your pantry. He's like, what? And you're like, what's that doing there? And then he takes you to number one. He says, I'll show you how it got there. You see, you allowed in a thought and an idea. And so this is why when God teaches us in and through his word, he's going to teach us to start with level one. You take it serious at level one. You see, you can't take level one seriously if the word of God is not at the center. But when the word of God comes to the center, suddenly level one becomes very sharp for you. And you begin to be sensitized to it. And that changes everything in between. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how how can he love God whom he has not seen? He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar. Because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. So the question is, do you believe God? And if you believe God, you believe his record. And when you believe his record, you're saying that God is truth. If you do not believe his record, you are calling God a liar. And that is the simple basics. John is always overly simplistic about things. But he's basically saying, 
either you believe the word of God or you don't. Do you believe God? Because if you do, you're going to love your brother. You're going to start to heed the word of God. If you don't, you're calling him a liar. You know, your choice. The word of God is a person. So when we stick the word of God in the center, basically what we're doing is we're putting Jesus at the center of our life. And this is how Christianity functions. We call it the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece. He is what our world revolves around. And the Spirit of God functions in this capacity to maintain the centrality of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is maintained at the center, or the Word of God is at the center of our life, that the Holy Spirit is constantly sponsoring this thought process from input to output, then truly the Father is seen. And through our life, when we show Jesus, well, then Jesus shows the Father. And so as a result, the whole Trinity is a part of this incredible work. And so Jesus is actually the one who dwells inside of us. And you've heard people talk about that. You know, I used to, have you guys ever heard of a shrinky dink? Uh, I don't even know if they have shrinky dinks anymore, but they were like this type of plastic or something that you would draw a picture on or something, and then you'd stick it in the oven, it would shrink down. And so I asked my mom if Jesus was a shrinky dink. You know, how does he get inside here? And to me, I couldn't figure out how in the world he would get inside. But it's by faith that we believe in Jesus Christ and actually he enters in by the power of his spirit, by the life of his spirit, to dwell inside that chamber in our existence known as the spirit man. And when he enters into that, our spirit is enlivened and no longer are we controlled by the flesh as we were before, but now we're controlled by that centerpiece, by that power within known as the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to take from what Jesus says, which is the word of God, And he's going to begin to refine the thought receptor. He's going to then begin to strengthen the kidneys to be sensitive, to not allow anything. It's like frisking down every thought. Hey, hey, whoa, what are you carrying there, buddy? And he's like, "Ah, that goes out. That's not allowed in here. You see, our kidneys are fully operational the way God intended them to be. And then as a result, our pantry is going to continually be stocked with that which is healthy. Some of us already have some bad stuff in our pantry. And as a result, the Spirit of God will even go into our pantry and say, what's this? We're like, oh, I didn't even know I had that. And the way God reveals these things is amazing. Most of us actually don't know what's going on in here. But you invite the Holy Spirit in, and guess what? You're far beyond Freud when it comes to the inner life. The Christian is the expert in the inner life, not because we focus on our inner life. We focus outward. But we have the master of worlds that is focused on our inner life. Guess what? We don't have to spend a lot of time focused inward. He does. He's focused on that, and he does the purifying. And when he brings something up in your pantry, what do you do? You deal with it. You immediately respond to that. The centrality of Christ, Christ in the center. Boy, I'm a broken record. That's like all I talk about. That's all I care about. That's what this environment is about. That's what the inner life is about. The inner life that functions is all built around the centrality of Jesus Christ. But I fear lest by any means is the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Oh, we're back to the garden. The serpent is beguiling Eve. What's he saying? He's trying to bring her attentions off the center. He's trying to make it about her. This is how the serpent works. So I fear lest by any means is the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Don't allow Christ to be moved from the center. The center is what it's all about. See, what's funny is even those of us that bring in Christ, you know what the enemy doesn't give up on us? You know what he wants to do? He wants to somehow layer something else into that holy place, into that center reasoning point. Oftentimes he'll get side doctrines and he'll try and get those in there where we'll be all passionate about a side doctrine and forget that it's all about Jesus. And we lose track of what this is really all about. Some of us, it's a, it's a moral code. Uh, Some of us, it's a certain principle in our society. It's a political endeavor. We have the funniest things, we as conservatives, that will stick in there. And our life will revolve around it. Some of us, homeschooling. Homeschooling is the only type of uh, education that is possibly uh, reasonable today. And, you know, hey, I'm not going to argue that homeschooling is, is, is not a great idea. However, some of us will stick it in the center and will revolve our thinking and our processing around the wrong thing. It's just as much of a beguilement of the devil as anything else. See, the devil, if he can't get us on Darwinianism and Freudianism, is going to get us on something else. We must be watchful of what is entering in. Beware the enticements of the words of men. The dunce cap. 
Now, one of these days, I, either Dan needs to give the message on it or I need to get more information on it, but there's a guy named John Duns Scottis uh, that was born almost the exact time as William Wallace, almost, is right down the street from Ellerslie in Scotland. Isn't that an amazing thought? And he, at one point in time, was considered one of the most brilliant men on earth. And, uh, but the dunce cap is named after him. You know why? He used to wear a hat that was pointy, and it pointed up to what he felt was the one central thing in all of life, and that was Jesus Christ. His life, he, he taught what was called the primacy of Christ. Everything in Scripture points to Jesus. I'm talking about one of the most brilliant men ever. And yet, in history, how do we know him? As the dunce. Just get used to it. You might as well stick on your dunce cap right now. The world will not accept it. They do not want God. They've rejected God. So anyone that dares stick on that cap will become the dunce. You make your life about one singular thing, and the world will give you hell for it. So the dunce cap. For all those who dare to defy Darwin and Freud. I don't know if you've gone to the zoo lately, and you walk around with your kids at the zoo, and they're reading something, or you're trying to read it for them. It's like, yeah, that's, that's not actually true. Yeah, that's not true either. Is anything true here? Yes, that is actually called a zebra. <laughs> I don't know if you felt that, but don't you feel like odd man out? What's wrong with us? I mean, am I that stupid that I would actually think to defy the whole system? Every intellectual, all the educated people have gone this way. And all the uneducated, imbecilic ones are the ones that are like, I don't think that's true. Who are we? We believe the word of truth. We are saying that God tells the truth. They're calling him a liar. I want to side with God on this one. And as a result, I'm the happiest guy around. It's funny, but these guys are miserable. You ever seen their dour, sour expressions? They die in torment in defiance of God. You know what? It's not the most pleasant story. How come that part of the story doesn't come out? Show the demons. Reveal to everyone how miserable they are in the state of their soul. You live in rebellion to God. You live in rebellion to life itself. All you have is eternal misery before you. But Jesus Christ so loved us that he gave his very life up to open up that veil, to bring us in to that holy place, to allow us to access that very spirit that raised him from the dead. The pure in heart, they are the ones with good food for thought in their soul's pantry. Have you ever heard of the pure in heart? The Bible actually talks about them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Remember the heart? Remember it's the pantry in the kitchen? Blessed are the pure in heart. So let's go through the idea of, well, I have to give the bad news 582. Miserable are the dark in heart, for they shall be unable to see God. It's interesting, but I don't know if you've ever felt it. When you're dealing with someone who is so Darwinian in their thinking, you look at the same thing and you stand in awe at the creation of God. And they look at it and they examine it. They do not see God in it. Have you ever had that? Where you, I mean, our arguments as Christians were like, I am so bewildered by the sovereignty, the power, the providence of God. Look at this. And they look at the same thing and they cannot see God. You see, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. When you allow the truth to reign in your heart, it sets you free and now everything you look at, in scripture you see Jesus, in scripture you see the creator, you see him everywhere, here, there, everywhere. All creation testifies to him. The pure in heart will see it. But the miserable are the dark in heart, for they shall be unable to see God. So what is purity? Obviously that becomes important in this, because the pure in heart will see. What is purity? Purity is not merely the absence of the bad. Because a lot of us would say, well, purity is just abstaining from bad things. It's more than that. Purity is not merely the absence of the bad, it's the exclusive presence of the perfect. You see, when that which is pure dwells within you, suddenly you begin to be aware of that which is not like him and empowered to kick it out. I don't know if any of you have esteemed purity and been unable to be pure. That whole cyclical pattern of defeat is for the birds. It's miserable because you can esteem purity, but that doesn't mean you can be pure. The pure are those that invite the living God who is purity into the center of their life, who empowers them then 
to think as he thinks, and to kick out that which isn't like him. That's how purity functions. So purity involves judgment. There's two Greek words we're going to go into, aile and krino. So aile is the word for the sun's rays, the light of the sun, the light of God's word, the light of truth. And so this word mixed with krino is actually the word for purity in the New Testament. Krino means to judge, to decide with governing authority, to oversee and arbitrate what is truth and what is error, to bring finality of judgment, to determine punishment and sentence based on revealed evidence. So it's interesting because purity involves this word, krino. When you are pure in heart, that means you are putting judgment on something and saying, it is not right. It is not like God. It is not in agreement with God's word. This is how purity functions. So aile plus krino equals aile krinos, which would mean to be judged, examined, and inspected by the light of God's word. It means to judge, examine, and inspect using the light of God's word. This is how we as Christians are intended to function. So here is the actual word in the Greek. Aile krines, pure, sincere, and unsullied. Found pure when unfolded and examined by the sun's light. So you take every thought and you unfold it and examine it in the sun's light. Well, you could say sun instead of S-U-N. You could say S-O-N. The sun's light, his knowledge, his understanding, which is the word of God. Examined by the sun's light, it's without mixture. It's clear and separated from foreign matter. It's freed from anything of a different nature. Not intermingled with anything unlike or dissimilar. So here we are, Paul is using the word aelicrines. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent. You see, there is something that is coming against you, but you need to approve that which is excellent. That which is in agreement with God's light. So that you may be aelicrines. That you may be examined by God's son. That you may be examined and found pure and unmixed. And without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So listen to Peter now talk about this. And he uses this word. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your aelicrines minds by way of remembrance. Now that's not the most normal sounding sentence to us. He's actually saying... He's writing you another letter, and the letter is being written for this purpose, that he would stir up these minds that are unfolded and laid bare before the sun's light, and they are found without mixture, so that I would stir up your aelicrines minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior." So what does he want them to be sensitive and remembering but the word of God? He says that your minds would be aelicrines. So here's the Eric edition of that scripture. I've spent a lot of time in this particular scripture. It's somewhat of a confusing one. So this is my paraphrased sort of amplified version of it. I am writing this second epistle, beloved, so that I can rouse you once again to judge, examine, and inspect by the light of God's word everything that attempts to come into your mind. I will continue to press this point over and over again that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. This is how Christianity functions. That we would be roused, even maybe through a sermon like this, to once again judge, examine, and inspect. How? By the light of God's word, everything that attempts to come into our minds. That we would not be passive and allow just anything and everything to flow through. There's this concept, and it's very highly esteemed today, of open-mindedness. Oh, yes, whatever thought wants to come, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu or Islamic, it's fine because, you know, we're all sort of the brotherhood of, you know, humanity. And Christians have imbibed this. When in actuality, there is one truth. There is one life that saves. There is only one way to the Father. And as politically incorrect as that is, it's still true. So I could try and pacify and pander after popularity ratings today by giving something false, or I could give what is true so that people could be saved. Which one is more loving? For me to just tell you what would make you pat me on the back and say, you're one of us, brother. 
or to give you that which is true and saves the life. You see, there's only one truth that saves. And it's not egotism that would say that, and I've found it. I am humbled by the fact that I'm entrusted with it, by the fact that God has chosen me, that he's awakened me, and all of us should be. But still, we're responsible to maintain this thought life, this inner man for the glory of God. Aili Krines. Living in a day when the, when the idea chefs are Darwin and Freud. See, most of us don't realize how impacted we are by these ideas that have changed the world. But we, we are. We're greatly impacted by it. And so the idea chefs of our day are Darwin and Freud. And if you dare say anything to the contrary of the gods, the mentors, the teachers of modern thought, well, it's your end. It is. You try and work in a zoo and stand against Darwin. Good luck get, keeping your job. Good luck getting the job. Could you imagine the interview? So how do you stand on uh, the age of the earth? And it's like, well, I think it's uh, <clears throat> about 6,000 years old. You know how ludicrous that sounds? It is a complete joke to those that have bought hook, line, and sinker Darwin's thinking. Dramatically shifting direction. A study in the manliness of Phineas the priest. So what do we do in a time of dire circumstances? You know that in the time of Moses, Moses and Aaron are ruling Israel, and you'd think, oh, you know, uh, you know, at least we have clear authority now. After the ground opened up and the Korah rebellion was swallowed whole, you'd think everyone would get their act together. But this people continues in this cyclical pattern of apostasy. They continue to go after other gods. They're going after another thought, something else that could save them, something else that could enhance their life. Excuse me, people. What is wrong with you? This is exactly where we're at on this earth. Is it not obvious to everyone that we have a creator, that this universe in which we live could not have just been founded by a bang? Or am I the only one that stares at it in absolute awe and wonder and says, dear God, I see you so clearly? Sometimes I feel like I am. And yet, we live in a world of rebellion. Even if people did see it, they can't acknowledge that they see it. And after a certain amount of rebellion, you no longer see it. You no longer behold the simple truths of the creator of the heavens and the earth. And you begin to hold everyone in contempt that would dare bring up something that would convict your soul otherwise. So, how do we shift direction? How do we do something about this? Well... It's a study in the manliness of Phineas the priest. The time period, Israel is in the wilderness and have not yet entered the land of promise. The grave situation, Israel has gone headlong after foreign fire. They have gone after foreign gods. They've gone after other things other than Jehovah. God has said, you shall have no other gods before me. And they, in direct contradiction, only years later, are already on the war path. They've gone after the gods of the Midianites, the gods of the Moabites. Hey, people, what's happened to you? They have turned their back on God and have begun to bring disgusting mixture into Israel, worshiping the false gods. You see, that which is coming and it's being presented, remember level one? They're just opening the door to it and saying, will this make me feel good? Yes, this will help you with you know, your uh, relationships with your family. This will help you in your communication. This will help you with your crops, whatever it is. There's gods for everything in these other nations. And when Israel begins to receive them and allow them in, it begins to defile the entire country. So they're worshiping the false god Baal and even joining themselves to him through sacrifice. As a result, the people of Israel are dying by the droves. In fact, at the time of this story, 24,000 have died due to this decision to bring foreign fires into the camp. 24,000 have already died because of the judgment. The moment of decision, will someone in Israel stand up? Is there a man in Israel who cares? Will the life of Israel be completely swallowed up before sanity returns and the purity is once again brought back to the people? Introducing Phineas, the priest. So this is precisely where we stand today. My incredulity towards Darwinianism and Freudianism is off the charts. I look at their notions as literally unbelievable it is so astounding that even the church of today will imbibe it. There is a defilement in Israel. There is one God, one creator. 
He has done the work. He has revealed to us. He has expressed his love in such a condescending way to give us life. And we are spitting back upon him. We as a ex-Christian culture have turned away from him. He has prospered us. He has benefited us as we followed his law, as we followed his ways. Our government was built upon his premises, and we have thrown it overboard. What do we do about it? Will someone in Israel stand up? Uh, Not not me, because heads will roll. We know it. It's called political correctness. We know where to keep our head. It's just below that line. Who in their right mind is going to stick it up there? But truth is truth. And unless someone stands up for truth, truth falls in the streets. Is there a man in Israel who cares? Will the life of Israel be completely swallowed up before sanity returns? And the purity is once again brought back to the people. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment. Remember what purity is? Purity is an execution of judgment on that which is false. Isn't that interesting? That which is impure. It's an execution of judgment on it. And so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. Whatever Phineas did was fairly impressive to God. Numbers 25, and behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses. So I picture Moses and Aaron and Phineas, those that are in charge, literally seeing this travesty, maybe even weeping together in their tents. And before all of them, in broad daylight, one of the Israelites snubs his nose at that tent with his Midianitish woman in front of all of them, walks in front of them and goes into his tent. Sort of like, I don't care about your God. I don't care about your law. Whoa. All right, what should we do? And in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman that threw her belly. Sorry. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel, and those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath, turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. The return of the judges. Men that have a vision for what Israel ought to be and are willing to do whatever it takes to see it become that way once again. Now, most of us, when we hear something like that, are thinking of picking up javelins and throwing them at people. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the seriousness within the church of Jesus Christ of taking our javelins and standing at the door of these houses, the door of this house. When the church, the last bastion of truth in this generation, starts opening up its doors to the Midianitish women and bringing them in in absolute defiance of the word of God, we're in a bad situation. Precisely what is taking place today. You happen to be in a conservative church, so you oftentimes forget how serious of an issue this is. But this is a serious issue. And God has entrusted us with a javelin to make sure, according to the word of God, that we are living in purity not allowing defilement to enter in. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What is Christ? He's the word of God. So every thought being brought into the captivity unto that obedience. You see, this idea is that we are to be on guard in our own thoughts and as a body. We do not entertain thoughts that would undermine the very fabric, the very nature of the integrity of God's plan. The word of God in text is always the first thing to be attacked by the devil. The word of God in person is a natural subsequent attack because if you undermine the confidence we have in the word of God in text, what happens? The word of God in person is suddenly questioned too and you'll see the deity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus will be the next thing lessened. When you lessen the deity of Jesus, what do you naturally lessen? His work on the cross. 
and the deity of that work. That it was God who gave up his life. That God suffered. You see, when you diminish this, you diminish what's known as the atonement, the redemption. You actually undermine the very gospel by simply beginning to doubt and question the word of scripture. Which is why we as the church start in the opposite direction. We say, let's establish the word of scripture in our midst. And what does that do? That establishes Jesus Christ as God. And what does that do? That establishes his work on the cross as sufficient for us. And as a result, when we put faith in it, we have confidence in our salvation. You see, when you undermine these things, the world goes haywire. When you establish them, the world has hope once again. You want to change things? Start bringing judgment on Darwinianism and Freudianism. Start bringing judgment on that which is attempting to creep into the church of Jesus Christ and stick your javelin through it. It does not enter your soul. To dramatically shift direction, judgment must be executed. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed, and that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not physical javelins that we are now uh, swinging and, and throwing. We, are, you, we have weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Those weapons are spiritual weapons. It is that which moves into the very center of our being. It is spirit. It is not by might nor by power, but by his spirit that this world will be changed. The first place is for judgment. Eile plus crino equals executing judgment by the light of God's word. So what are our first places to make a judgment? When you're at gate one and you have thoughts coming in, make sure you're kicking out the wrong thoughts and allowing in the right thoughts. The word of God in text is where we start. What do you believe about the word of God in text? What God has established in and through his word, but also through the testimony of his word, the supernatural nature of his word, is that this is in fact God's word. You must make a judgment on that. If you lay passive about that and stand back in the tent and watch the Israelite take in the Midianitish woman, you do nothing, then you die. You must rise up in confidence. That is true. You rise up and you understand that that word is in fact God's word. And as a result, it will establish strength in your life. How about the word of God in person? You must make judgment on this. Don't be passive. Don't just sit by idly and go, well, I mean, I think he's a good man. What does the word of God say about him? If you believe the word of God is in fact the word of God, then what does the word of God say about Jesus Christ? He is the I am. Before Abraham was, he says, I am. He is in fact Emmanuel, God with us. His beginnings, his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. He wasn't just born in a, and laid in a manger back 2,000 years ago. He was before that. He is in fact the word of God. He is in fact the son of God. He is, in fact, eternal, unchanging, for he bears the same image as his father. He is the I am. The cross. You see, when you make judgment on the first two, how could you come to a sloppy judgment on the cross? That is everything. The center. That is the day in all of history when the sin of the iniquity of the land was removed in one singular day. That is it. That is my hope. That is the fullest expression of God on earth. That is the day. It looks like a travesty, but in fact, it is the greatest triumph. And we find our, that great river of life coming forth out of his side at that cross. Your position in Christ, if you know those three, and then you recognize the invitation from Jesus Christ, you better make a judgment on it. Is that position for you? The door is open. Do you long for it? And you say, I do. Then make a judgment on it and enter into Christ by faith. The door is open. He's unlocked it. Your present tense relationship with foreign fire. All of those Baal gods, the Ashtaroth, all those other things that would dare try and creep in and defile. Make your decision on how you're going to relate to them right now. You do not engage with mixture as a Christian. You say no. You hold your javelin in place and you say, you do not enter here. Stock your pantry right and then keep it stocked right. That's just how Christianity works. Some of you have been too lackadaisical regarding your thought life. And I mean it. When I say that you take every thought captive, I mean every thought. You need to put a sentinel, if you need 40 sentinels, set them all there. If you have to literally spend a whole season of your life literally setting all your spiritual energies at that door to say, I need to be watchful. What am I doing? How'd that thought just get in there? It's right when you least expect it, when you're just sort of walking along and you see a screen over here, you see a magazine over here, your thoughts will go. You must not allow just anything in. 
You must have your kidneys working. Who's at the center? If the Spirit of God is there, allow Him to convict you and listen to that conviction. Be sharp in this life. So as we finish, we finish with the words of Paul. What are you supposed to allow in? What are you supposed to test? How are your kidneys going to function? What are you stocking in your pantry? Because you need to stock it well and then keep it stocked right. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatever thing, so things are, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. How are you handling your thought life? Because how you handle your thought life is going to define what is coming out of your life. And if you handle your thought life properly, guess what? The Spirit of God is the one handling and convicting you of your thought life, and it's in agreement with the Word of God. Guess what's going to come out of your life? The fruit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What's coming in is defining what's coming out. So if you have some bad stuff coming out, you may ask the Spirit of God to search your pantry. Is there something that you've allowed in? You know, there's some crazy doctrinal ideas that get stuck into the funniest places in our life. That sometimes we just need God to touch. It's okay. He's safe. You're not doing it for me. You're doing it for him. And so let's just freshly lay ourselves before God and say, God, tighten the belts here. Give us a javelin in hand and may we put our sentries at the gate and may we begin to do this right so that that which is coming out of our life truly pleases you. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ell. E-R-S-L-I-E dot com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.